This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we have packed a few different shows together that we call Highlights to help you to get the most bang for your time in educating you on the topics that you want to learn from. We would love to hear from you. I am grateful that you are with us today. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Ken Wimberly. Thanks for being on the show, Ken. Thanks so much for having me. appreciate it. I look forward to this conversation. Uh, you are a what's called a multidisciplined entrepreneur and, and have over 15 different streams of income, including four operating businesses. I think that's kind of like the dream of most of us, right? Maybe. We're going to hear a little more about that. And he's taken a passion as a father and also has created an app for parents called Legacy of Love. Uh, he has over 20 years of experience in commercial real estate, but just has numerous entrepreneurial ventures and, and very successful. So Ken, welcome to the show. Grateful to have you on. Look forward to hearing more about, but you know, just everything you've accomplished. So, but get us started a little bit. Give us a little background in this 20 years of commercial real estate. Love to dive into some more of the just multidisciplinary entrepreneurship, you know, that you've accomplished. Sure. I got in the commercial real estate business in late 2002. And my first number of years in the business were that as a land broker, most of my clients were uh, residential land developers that would go buy tracks from 50 to 200 acres and they, they would land plan it, take it through zoning, planning, sell the lots off to home builders. And I was kind of their bird dog. I was their go-to guys out there assembling tracks for them. And that's all I did for probably the first five years of my business is just go and find land deals for a handful of clients. And primarily on the buy side, wasn't a listing broker or anything like that. I was just repping them on the buy side of deals and did quite well in that part of the business. And that led me to, you know, I was looking at land all of the time. It's what I did it was studied land, studied values, studied ownership on that. And so that led me to getting into my first couple of commercial real estate opportunities as an investor, which were it was what I was doing. It was in the land side of things. So I syndicated a couple of those with some partners on the land side. And then, you know, 2008 financial crisis comes The equity markets or certainly debt markets shut down for most everything in commercial real estate, certainly in the land markets and land just tanked and went dormant for a number of years. So spent a few years doing whatever I could, working on a number of different things in the brokerage world, including did a lot of bank REO work for a uh, national or a regional, rather, Texas bank, did uh, a number of REO dispositions for their bank. And as we came out of that recession, started looking at what else I could focus on. I actually hired a commercial real estate business coach at the time who advised me, he said, look, Wimberly, you should, I was actually still doing a fair amount of transactional volume right there as far as number of transactions, but my deal size during the downturn had gotten smaller and smaller on the deal size. And so he said, Wimberly, you need to basically find an asset class. that has got a bigger price tag and it moves quicker than land. So it can turn over and ended up with a focus on triple net investment properties. And so that was circa 2011 right there. And so from 2011 moving forward, I really had a sole focus on investment income properties. And I got my CCIM in 2010. So it was my, I liked doing the analytics and assessing properties and putting all the numbers together. And so that was all of our focus. I ended up building a, a fairly sizable real estate group 
We scaled that business from about eight or nine million in annual volume up to over 100 million in annual volume. And as we were doing that, I also said, then my focus was all on investment income. And so I bought a couple of those kinds of properties as well, started investing in some other people's deals and putting some money there. So started slowly kind of building my own portfolio, my own wealth into that. The success in that led to opportunities through some other things. I opened up a, a Keller Williams franchise in Abilene, Texas and started to grow that. We bought a building, put together a, a partnership that housed our Keller Williams office out there. And fast forward a couple of years later, I was getting into another shopping center acquisition and that led me into the laundromat business. I was actually looking for a tenant for our building, a potential building right there and came across a, a laundromat guy and he assessed our building and said, man, this is a perfect laundromat location. And so I was trying to get them as an operator into the building, but eventually realized that he wasn't an operator. He was actually an equipment distributor and he did not have an operator. So a long story short, I ended up getting into that business with a couple of other partners. We opened up our first laundromat last September in, again, in Abilene, Texas, in a shopping center that we had bought and put together. And now we're in the process of opening up locations number two and three right now. So around the same time as I did the laundromat, I did what you mentioned. I created the app Legacy of Love for parents' child journaling as I've been journaling to my children since my daughter was one. She's now 17 years old and my son was still in the womb at the time. He's now 16 and now we've got a four-year-old, but I've been journaling to them for all of their life and had told dozens of parents about that. And that led to actually me creating an app. There just wasn't something in the market for what I was doing. There were journaling apps out there, journaling programs, but nothing that would do how I was going through this process. And so we have created our own program and product out of it. So that's the real short version of my story from and how we got to where we are today. That's incredible. And I want to jump into some of the commercial real estate stuff there and some questions I have for you just as an entrepreneur as well. But on the app itself, what does that do again? Like just you know, in a sentence or two, you know, what's your goal there with that app? My goal is to help as many other parents as possible to capture the moments that are happening in their lives or the memories they're creating or the lessons that they want to pass down so that they can later pass that on to their children that can be passed on to their grandchildren and future generations. I've come across more and more and more people that are like, you know, it's the history of our family that is the real joy of life right there. And this is, you know, me journaling to my children was a way for me to capture our history as it was happening. It was a way for me to save the big, the high moments, the low moments, the good times, the crash of 2008, and the milestones that they've encountered in their lives. And so we created the app in order so other parents could do that. They could document it with photos, videos, audio files, save voicemails, all of that, and create a beautiful digital timeline of their child's life. And that's what we created with Legacy of Love. I love that. My wife and I recently, I didn't even know about this app, but we just started like trying to record a video once or twice a month of just us talking about what our kids are doing. And and like you said, highs and lows, different things we want to document, you know, so they can just see us talking about it, you know, 20 years from now and what, you know, what they did. So that's neat. I'm going to look it up myself. And so I want to jump into your career a little bit. I mean, I don't want the listener to listen to that again or, or to hear, you know, your path a little bit because you started bird dogging land deals. 
you know, and then you hired a business coach. And, you know, as far as hiring that business coach, you know, what was your thought process? What were you hoping to accomplish? And did it do that? Yeah, I had never had a coach prior to that point. And my business had kind of been fairly steady. I mean, even through the downturn, I, I did okay in business. We were making six figures or more each year, but it was steady. And what I was looking was, how do I get better? How do I improve? How do I improve myself? And really, it was shortly after I joined KW and the KW Commercial Network that I started hearing people from stage, from the stage that had really big lives, really big businesses. And all of them were talking about the value of mentors and coaches in their life. And so that's kind of what led me. So what did I want out of that? I wanted focus in my business and I wanted some techniques and strategies and accountability to help me actually grow my business and to get to where I wanted to go. So my coach kind of helped me with goal setting, helped me kind of visualizing, hey, where do you want to be in the next three and five years right there? And then putting a plan in place to go get there. And then he'd hold me accountable to doing what I set with my plan. And it worked. It worked in a big way. Nice. So, you know, and quickly, I think after that, or, you know, you talked about, you know, he said, find a larger asset class that, that moves faster than land. And then also, you know, you, you built a real estate group that went from 8 million annually to 100 million annually. And, you know, give us some keys to making that happen. You know, what caused that massive growth? A few things. First and foremost, I think is focus. Focus in a niche in an asset class. For all of my, well, I had focused on land that first five, six years in the business. And that was great. And I had a big business focused on that little asset class. And then for the next three or four or five years, it was, I was more of a generalist through that downturn as things were right there. And when I refocused into one asset class and the coach gave me that great advice of find something that has velocity in the market. Land can be a great asset class, but you can have a phenomenal tract of land as a broker. And it might take you five years to sell that phenomenal tract of land just because there's a really limited buyer pool for a particular location of land that has a particular use that's you know, from its zoning classification. In something like triple net investings or shopping centers or multifamily or the hotel industry, there's a lot of different asset classes that people can endeavor into that has a much higher velocity. And frankly, it's people from around the country or even around the world that invest in these kind of assets. So that was a big aha for me. And so we focused just on this narrow niche of products. And then we even niched down from there into two or three tenants. And that's what we really did. And so our team became experts in two or three tenants in this asset class and got to know the players in that business. We got to know the developers and the investors and the REITs that did it. And it was relationship-based like so many things in life. And we started establishing relationships with these folks, which led to more and more and more transactional volume that we were able to do. Our guest is Ng Tang. Thanks for being on the show, Ng. Thanks for having me, Vinny. Ng is the CEO and founder of Tuzai Capital, an investment company focusing on high cash flow assets in Kansas City. He's a classic immigrant story, born in a refugee camp in Thailand, escaping the Khmer Rogue and finding success in data and math in America. 
He is a Wharton graduate economist, former Peace Corps volunteer, and ex-Apple data scientist turned real estate investor with a $65 million portfolio, finding financial freedom at age 35. Ng, thank you so much for being on the show. Grateful for your time. I'm looking forward to hearing just your amazing journey and uh, and just how you, you know, financial freedom at 35 is something most I only dream of, and you've come a long way to find it and been very successful. So, you know, give the listeners and myself a little more about your background. You know, we'd love to hear your story and just inspire all of us, I'm sure. Well, thanks for having me on again. My story is... I think unique, but you know, not too unique for uh, an immigrant. I'm Cambodian, and my parents are born in Cambodia. And during the late '70s, there was a cruel dictator named Pol Pot. And I think after Vietnam War, he was toppled out. But they conducted a pretty brutal regime, and they targeted intellectuals and Chinese Cambodians, which normally what my ethnic background is, and so. I, of course, didn't suffer through all that. I was a baby, but I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand and immigrated here when I was two. And unlike some other Asian immigrants, my parents didn't even have a high school or grade school education. So my model for success was folks, like my parents that worked and hustled seven days a week and did things very entrepreneurial. Now they told me to not do that. Because if you're struggling and you're working very hard, you tell your kids to find security. And so they made me work for education as my primary job. And I was pretty good at it. And I tested very well. And I was really good at math. And in fact, I day traded in high school. And I paid my way for uh, Wharton and Penn studying economics and finance, day trading and then playing poker. So I was pretty good at math. And so after going to economics and finance, and really my driving motivation was helping lift my parents and my family out of poverty. And I was a group on welfare stamps and welfare in general. Um, and it helped me gain a hunger, I think, that my peers didn't have. And as soon as I started making money out of college, getting into investment banking, I invested it in the financial markets. And then the financial markets took a dive a few years after that in 2008. 2006, 2007, and I realized that real estate was a much safer investment and real estate was one third the cost of what it was two years ago. So I started buying real estate after that. But that was part of my start, my start of my investing journey. But after being in investment banking and financial markets, I went to Peace Corps. It was another decision that my parents would not be so happy with because they were left a war-torn country and I was going to volunteer at another war-torn country. This was in 2009, right after Russia invaded Georgia. So I went to be a volunteer in the Peace Corps at the Republic of Georgia a year after Russia invaded. And there was landmines everywhere, there was shells and there was refugees as they annexed part of Georgia, Abkhazia. But it was a really cool experience helping people out, bringing sort of what I knew helped with their development, their community, and just being living in another culture. And I actually met my wife there. Uh, she's not Georgian. She's actually from Ohio. And as soon as I heard another American voice, it was like, wow, it was like serendipity. So that was a really cool experience. And, you know, we moved out together and then moved back to Los Angeles where I had to reingratiate myself into corporate America because I was in Peace Corps, you're making $200 a month. And 
that doesn't cover housing. So you have to pay for your own housing. Luckily, housing is very cheap there. But your Peace Corps experience is really about adaptability and flexibility. And I learned that in spades. And so going out of finance, getting into gaming, which is the next industry I went into, uh, was a really cool experience because I love playing games. Um, in this case, I rent, joined Riot Games and I worked on the game League of Legends. Potentially some of you are in, listeners have heard of that. Very popular game. And I've been focusing a lot on analytics and data and understanding behavioral patterns of how in the financial markets, how people consume and spend and what we can loan to them. That caused a subprime mortgage crisis a little bit. So apologies for that. But in gaming, it's all about understanding people's behavior on the gameplay and how to optimize it and make it a more rewarding experience. So it's a really cool transition, still using data and analytics and data science. And I just kept moving on to the next industry at DirectTV, where I got a window into how everybody consumes media. We negotiated for NFL Sunday ticket and we understood how many subscribers we could get because people really want to watch NFL Sunday ticket and Red Zone. And that's a lot of understanding people's viewership patterns. By the way, all this time, I'm still investing in real estate. In fact, even in Peace Corps, I was, I was buying apartment buildings, three triplex and quadplex in 2009, 2010. And then finally, I left DirecTV, AT&T after AT&T merged with the company to join Apple. And I worked on iPhone forecasts, uh, which is very important because if you over forecast, then you have a, too much supply. If you under forecast, then you're not developing the factories at a capacity where you have shortfall and then you have long wait times. And if you have long wait times, that could be seen as a good thing for, you know, oh, cool, there's a lot of people wanting it. But then a consumer might want to then buy another competitor's phone because they don't want to wait two, three months to get the latest iPhone. And then I joined Apple Music within Apple and I helped launch that and grow subscriber base by several tens of millions. And then finally, I led data science at Siri, where it's really cool to get trillions of data of information, understanding the whole interaction with an AI and trying to make it more usable and a better experience. And all the time, by the way, I'm still investing in real estate. And for the last two years, the last three years, I've been buying bigger assets because I realized my time is very valuable and buying three triplex and quadplex does take a lot of time and managing it takes a lot of time. And so I started to passively invest in other people's syndications. And then I started to buy it myself as I got more funds. And last month I left Apple and now I'm doing this full time, although I've been doing it for several years now, but this is, I am financially free enough to uh, do this full time. And actually I have one kid on the way. So this is, this allows me to, pursue my passions of family and real estate. Wow. Amazing story. I mean, it's amazing all the things you've accomplished, everything, everywhere you've been. Uh, but then in addition to that, you've been investing in real estate at the same time. I, and I wanted to go back a little bit and say, you know, like, how did you first build even the wealth to start investing in real estate? And what was the, you know, first, say, piece of real estate? What was that? What was your, you know, what was it that you invested in first? I save a lot. I struggle still, even with the income level I have, the wealth I have, 
to make a decision on a $20 meal versus a $10 meal. And imagine me and 20 years old, 21 years old, having an investment banking income and still struggling on a four or $5 meal. So I saved, I'm a prodigious saver. I've been always that case. And my first deal was a short sell. And I went to the sellers directly to the listing agent. In fact, I've never bought real estate with a agent. So I've always went directly to the listing agent and tried to get a good deal from that perspective. And it was $126,000. We put 10% down. And then I I lived in it a little bit, not the whole time, just to qualify for a really great rate. And then I still hold on to it. In fact, it generated 13% cash flow. I rehabbed it. I refinanced out of it. It was a triplex in Southern California. Back when Southern California was affordable. Can't remember those days anymore. But it was generating like 10 to 12% cash flow. And then I refinanced it eight months later, took the equity out and bought another thing. Wow. Good for you. You know, during that time when you were doing all the traveling, you were volunteering, you know, how were you paying your way then? How were you still investing in real estate and surviving while doing that? A lot of it was really conservative, just optimizing my capital, understanding where my capital is going. I'm not one to do a personal budget, but I do a P&L for my entire network and understanding where my capital is unoptimized. Am I making 5% here? Do I have a mortgage that I'm paying 3% on, but I have equity that I could tap and I could place it into something that yields 10 to 12%. So it's a lot of work to actively do that. It's probably easier to just buy something and just, you know, let it accumulate, let it cash flow and not have to refinance and not have to re-optimize your capital. But it's worthwhile, when, especially when you're starting out. I don't know if I would do it now to the extent I did it in the past, but it helped me really accelerate my investing. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 